South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz, here to talk with you about the paranormal as we are each and every Saturday night at this time. And uh, we are very excited about tonight's show. We've been talking about it for weeks. And as a Beatles fan, anytime we get the chance to talk about their music, I'm happy. But when you can put kind of a paranormal twist into it, even better. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking to Joseph Nesgoda. He's the author of The Lennon Prophecy, A New Examination of the Death Clues of the Beatles. And we've had uh, our Gary Patterson before on the show. And I don't think I'm going to be hurting anybody's feelings if I say that our Gary Patterson is my favorite spooky South Coast guest of all time. It's like 1A and 1B with Jim Mars. Uh, but... When we had uh, Gary on the show, we talked about the death clues in the Beatles' music and how it pertained to the Paul is Dead hoax. And, you know, everything was kind of tongue-in-cheek with that. You know, uh, Gary's perspective on that is that the Beatles, you know, whether or not they're going to admit it, you know, they kind of set this stuff up. And a lot of it is hindsight and us kind of reading into things uh, after the fact. But it's all in fun when you're talking about Paul McCartney. Look, folks, Paul McCartney isn't really dead. He wasn't replaced with some Canadian named William Shears Campbell. And, you know, the Paul McCartney that we see today is the same Paul McCartney we've always known and loved. But Joe is a little bit more serious in his work because he believes that the death clues in the book do not pertain to Paul McCartney and instead John Lennon. And we'll talk with him about that, why he thinks that, and what kind of clues may key in the fact that John Lennon, whether he was conscious of it or not, was alluding to his own death in a lot of these songs. So... It's just going to be a crazy night uh, talking about one of my favorite bands of all time, probably the greatest band of all time, uh, and the most influential for sure. And if you have any thoughts during the course of the program, which I'm sure many of you will, then you can call us at 508-996-0500, Matt, I don't have the toll-free number. you got to move that paper. <laughs> Thank you. One eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty. If you want to call us toll free, you think I would memorize that by now? How long did it take me to memorize the other phone numbers, though? I think I just got them yeah. when they when they dropped the Wareham line. So, toll free one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty. You can also email us spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com. We can get those emails right here in the Spooky Studio, and we'll be glad to read them on the air. One of the things that uh, when you talk about the Beatles and you talk about the legacy of John Lennon and his work, uh, a lot of people will maybe feel, I don't know, almost like we're being blasphemous uh, by talking about this subject matter. But there's a reason why the supernatural and the paranormal pop up all the time when you're talking about the Beatles. There's some sort of connection there, uh, whether, you know, whether it be this case or something else, there's definitely something more to it because when you look back on it, I scratch my head, they were great toward the end of their career, I don't understand why they were so huge at the beginning. 
I mean, it's obviously a combination of, of different factors, you know, being the right band at the right time and having a, a different image and a different approach to things than, than other bands had before. But there's just, there's no explaining Beatlemania, even today. I don't know. Can't explain it. Well, you don't like the Beatles anyway. That's true. <laughs> He's not shy about it. Yeah. He's, uh, it's kind of like last week when Moniz was talking about how much he doesn't like rap music. And, <laughs> you know, uh, this this is uh, this is kind of the rap music for Costa. Moniz, you're a Beatles fan. I enjoy the Beatles. You know what else I enjoy when his mic works, but apparently that's not the case tonight. Try again. I enjoy the Beatles. All right, well you can go home <laughs> if you want, <laughs> or we can just switch you to the other microphone. That might also be the case. Well, uh, if you uh, do want to share in with your stories, we're going to be playing some Beatles music uh, during the course of the evening as well. So if John Lennon has had an effect on you, uh, then feel free to join in the conversation. Again, 508-996-0500, And uh, also, uh, it's kind of an important date in Beatles history today because... Uh, coming up at midnight, you know, the show ends at midnight. We go into into Sunday. Sunday is the 46th anniversary of when the Beatles arrived in America, when they landed at JFK Airport in New York and took the world, took the country by storm. Uh, they appeared on Ed Sullivan, and everything changed. So we figured, you know, if we're going to talk to Joe Nisgoda, this would be the show to do it on, and we will do that in just a few minutes. Uh, so why don't we take a break, and when we come back, we will talk with Joe about the Lennon prophecy, about the Beatles. It's just going to be a hard day's night here on Spooky South Coast. Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. That was almost a coast-to-coast bumper right there. 
We let that one go, but that's because we're talking about the music of John Lennon and the Beatles tonight, and our guest is Joseph Nisgoda. He's the author of The Lennon Prophecy, A New Examination of the Death Clues of the Beatles. And, Joe, speaking of Coast to Coast, that's where I first heard about your work, and I was fascinated uh, just hearing you talk about it. And while I may not totally believe the theory behind it, maybe that's just because I don't want to believe it, But uh, you definitely make a compelling argument. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to make very clear to everybody at the start of this whole project when I was writing the book. Everyone is, has to come to their own conclusion. This is just my theory. Um, you have to judge. Everyone's left to judge for themselves. Well, this is something that you didn't just kind of write on a whim either. You worked on this book for a very long time. Well, I, I was always an avid Beatle fan, and um, right soon after the uh, John Lennon's death, I started to notice things, different things in the songs, and it almost started, the book almost started to write itself. This information just um, it presented itself to me in a fashion that uh, it was inevitable the book was going to be written. And we're talking about, so over this period of years, it wasn't a matter of, hey, I've got this idea. I, I, I think you can kind of read this into it. I mean, you were seriously, uh, seriously delving into this and really analyzing this and breaking it down. Well, I'll tell you, I, I, I'll tell you, I was hounded. I was hounded. Like some people call it a calling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have no hotline to heaven. I have no links with Satan. But this information, like I said, I was hounded to write this book. I, it was inevitable. I had no choice. It was my calling. or it was, You know, I, I like to think of it as my destiny. Well, we all know about the, the Paul is Dead story, and we've had Gary Patterson on the show, and and in his book, and even well before his book, it was well chronicled that uh, maybe the Beatles were playing a little trick on everybody and, and goofing around with us, saying that Paul McCartney might have been dead. And I'm assuming that, like everybody else, you played that game as well. Well, like I said, I'm a first-generation Beatle fan. And, I mean, like, I couldn't get enough of the guys. I, you know, collected their albums and fan magazines, looked for their TV appearances. I couldn't get enough of them. But then with the, with the uh, Paul McCartney death clues, I, I was fascinated by it, just to be a part of it all, the backward masking, the pictures, the lyrics. I, I mean, I didn't think I was any different than anyone else. And, um, but the problem was, you know, Paul McCartney wasn't dead. Paul McCartney didn't die a violent death. And so, I mean, there was a problem with it, although there's still people that today will profess that they believe that Paul McCartney was killed back in 1966 in a car accident. I mean, that's just how powerful these clues are and how much of an influence these clues had on people. But like I said, after John Lennon died, I started looking at things differently. And all of a sudden, these clues that we all, you know, there was always something sinister lurking just below the surface of the Beatles. We all sensed it, this whole death thing and, uh, you know, these clues and backward maskings and Satanism-type demonic things going on. And it wasn't just me. It was millions of people. And that's what I'd like to make clear that, you know, I'm no different than anyone else um, uh, other than I put this together in a book. But how many millions of people got that White Album on Revolution 9 and turned that record backwards to hear Turn Me On, Dead Man? There were many of us that did that. So basically what you're saying is our moms were right. Those those boys aren't really a good influence on us. Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> um, uh, uh, again, that's just, a, 
It depends on who you talk to, and it depends on when you talk to them. I mean, let's face it, when the Beatles first came out, they were not well-loved. All oh, the teenagers liked them. But, boy, I'll tell you, the, the adult population, the teachers, the educators were very threatened by the Beatles. Well, I'm not of, of, of your generation. I'm a little bit younger, Joe. So I, right. I wasn't around when that happened. And looking back, I can't understand why people equated four boys in suits with long, kind of longish hair, why they equated them with delinquency. Well, I'll tell you, if you, all you gotta go back, like, it's interesting because, uh, the Beatles, it's, uh, of all topics to write about, this is a terrific one because their lives were so documented. There isn't anything, any day, any day of the week, what they wore, where they were. And this information is all out there. And all you gotta do is go back in time and look at the original newspaper articles, as I did in researching this book. You'll be fascinated by what was said. I mean, if this is not anything unique, this is going back to 1963 in England before they came to the United States. They were using words like frenzy, demonic trance, incredible ways of describing these people who witnessed the Beatles live. That language aside, though, when they did come to America, uh, what we got was kind of like the, the, the boy band version, the, the crafted version of what Brian Epstein wanted us to, to experience them as when... You know, before that, in, in England, and, and when they were in Hamburg as well, you know, they, they wore leather jackets. They were what they called the teddy boys at the time, and they had kind of a darker image. Well, they did. They started out that way. But, again, I think that Brian had crafted, like you said, the word crafted. Um, he wanted something different for these guys. And so by the time they came over to the United States, at least when they appeared on Ed Sullivan, they were a little bit, they were perceived a little differently than what they really were about, than what they truly were. <laughs> Almost to the point where uh, they could only take it for so long. Well, they looked at each other and smiled and laughed. I mean, you know, they, they weren't used to wearing suits and ties. That's not what they were all about. They were anti-establishment from the beginning. Just look at their lives beforehand. Well, and also their approach to the music, too. I mean, when everybody else was kind of playing, you know, Elvis, they were playing the, the more uh, black artists and they were playing some of the dirtier stuff. Well, they, they always had a fascination with that aspect of music, no doubt. And you could tell it's, it, it, the, the influences on the Beatles are innumerable. Uh, it, it's incredible the amount of um, you know, anybody that knows music and looks and sees what was going on um, during that time frame will definitely be able to recognize a good deal of influence that uh, these artists had on the Beatles. So, I mean, when you're a young boy and, and this, the Beatles are making it big and they're hitting in America, uh, I mean, what, what do you perceive them as at that age? Oh, I, I couldn't explain it. I, 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 I still can't explain it to this day because, I mean, um, it's my birthday, February 7th, of all things. They landed the first day in America. It was Happy on my birthday. birthday, and it was a Friday um, in 1964. And I was remember I remember very I remember it as if it was yesterday. In fact, for some reason this whole thing with the Beatles, I remember everything I've ever read or saw or listened to. I I can't explain why, and it's not like that with any other thing in my life except for the Beatles. But it was my birthday, and I'm riding home on the school bus. I was, uh, you know, a young little boy in parochial school coming home, and some girls in front of me were talking, the older girls, and they go, oh, the Beatles are on Ed Sullivan. I, Beatles, I don't know. What's this Beatles? I don't know that. And I watched them that night on Ed Sullivan. Uh, it was a turning point. I, I couldn't explain it. I was absolutely fascinated, and that fascination lives today, 50 years later or whatever it is. I, I can't explain it. 
I mean, and, and you know what's interesting is that it still goes on today. If you watch those, those generations, new generations like yourself that are avid Beatles fans that are just as fascinated with these guys that you know have broken up back in 1970. I mean, I have a little bit of an embarrassing story as, as to how I got into the band. Uh, when I was uh, maybe about 11 years old, I was standing in the uh, then cassette section of Bradley's, which is now defunct, uh, in Brockton, Massachusetts, and I'm holding in my hand, I have Sgt. Pepper's, and in the other hand, I have Weird Al Yankovic's Even Worse album. <laughs> and I only had $10 to my name, so I'm picking which one I want to get, and I'm sorry to say that Sgt. Pepper went back on the shelf. <laughs> Luckily, when I went to my aunt's house and told her, you know, the choice that I had made, she's like, no, you made the wrong choice. And right. she had a copy of it and, and got me into it. But it was, like you said, almost from first listen, bam, it's there. I mean, and I had heard Beatles songs on the radio, but I had never heard this. And I had never heard whatever it was that was drawing me in. And it, it definitely has a profound effect. My son's five. I got Beatles Rock Band when it came out, and now he knows all the music, and he loves the music. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the thing I could never under, understand. Like I said, I loved Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin. I mean, I grew up at a time when music was terrific. I mean, just anything, any song on the radio was fantastic. You never turned the station back then. When you had your radio set, it was set, and there wasn't any songs that you didn't like. Mm -hmm. They were all phenomenal, great songs. But the thing is about these Beatles, I, I can't explain where... You would just listen to these albums and singles over and over and over again. I remember, like I said, I remember just about everything. I remember the one time um, uh, uh, Ringo Starr appeared on now, you know, off the air, the Phil Donahue show, and I remember I rushed home from school to see that appearance of Ringo on Phil Donahue. And the one lady said, "Now this is, you know, years after the Beatles had broke up." The one lady said, "My daughter, Ringo, why does my daughter go to her room?" And she puts on that song, Eleanor Rigby, and listens to it over and over and over again. You see? He, and Ringo's like, well, you know, Ringo, I, I don't know. Ask Paul. He wrote it. <laughs> but it's just interesting how this, how this music still plays out and how it affected me in my life. Well, there was some degree of precedence uh, in terms of, I mean, I, I like to consider myself a student of, of popular music, and there was some point of reference before the Beatles when Frank Sinatra first started singing with uh, with uh, Tommy Dorsey's band and the Tommy Dorsey right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, here I am calling myself student but uh, so he's when he's performing and girls are actually fainting and swooning uh, at his performances and that's you know a, a controlled environment you know where it's not it's not the atmospheric conditions of the room it's not uh you know anything that people put in their drinks they're literally swooning just in being in his presence well that's that's true i mean frank sinatra is a real good example because that too is documented in as much as you know it was right at the turning point of tv and, and of movie pictures you could see um you could see the girls screaming but what gets me and what sets the beatles apart from like a frank sinatra and elvis presley were girls were reacted these beetles affected not just girls but old and young males and females and one of the things that i like to reference and like any of the listeners um are welcome they should in fact i invite them to go to uh, youtube and just click on the beetles australia and in 1964 the beetles first went to australia and i mean it was i think believe it was in june of 64 which was just a few months after they appeared on the ed sullivan show no one had ever heard of this group before i mean i never heard of 
of them before. Maybe a few did, but and there's all those Beatle fans that say, oh, it was uh, this show, this show, this show. People did hear. Okay, but in Australia, let's just say, given the benefit of the doubt, that maybe they had three number one hits in two months or three months, and they go down to Australia, and this is documented. You can see the footage of them standing on, like, the balcony of the hotel, and there are 400,000 screaming fans out on a, in the streets just to get a glimpse of these four boys from Liverpool. Now, what is that all about? You see, I can't explain that with anything of nature or paranormal, however you want to call it. Mm-hmm. How do you explain that? Four hundred thousand. You know, some people say it's slick marketing. I don't. I don't call it slick marketing. There was never anything like it before, and hasn't been anything like it since. No, not at all. I mean, I look at the differences between when Elvis burst onto the scene and when the Beatles came around, because it's it's almost totally different. I mean, with Elvis, it was uh, a way of making a genre of music more acceptable to the mainstream. and it was, everybody was interested, it grabbed people's attention, but it just didn't seem to have the physical reaction that the Beatles uh, would have. It's it's almost like, uh, it's almost like what we would call in terms of a demonic possession, it's almost to the point of the obsession level, where it's taking you over and it's actually starting to control you. And I almost wonder if, uh, if the Beatles had kept touring, would people in the crowd eventually become completely possessed by them? Well, I... You know what? Those are your words, and I agree. I agree with everything you just said. I can't explain it. It's 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 different from any other group. It's, it's, it goes on today. I mean, there's still Beatle fests in this country, in the United States. Every year, people flock to, to these Beatle fests. I go myself, and to get a you know just to get a glimpse of someone who once saw the Beatles, you know, or whatever. To, and the, but to the people who are, are the diehards, like even beyond just fans who go to conventions and festivals and things like that, but to those who really almost live their life in a cult of Beatle, some of the memorabilia associated with the band almost takes on religious, uh, holy relic aspects to it. Like they feel like if you get touched by one of Ringo's drumsticks, you could be healed. Yeah, they've always sensed that. People sense something about these guys. And they, the Beatles commented that themselves, where they said that backstage it was pretty difficult for them because a lot of people would have children with disorders or, or with crippling diseases, and they would push them forward, hoping that they might touch a Beatle. And, and the Beatles, they themselves couldn't even explain it. They didn't understand this. Well, and they weren't. Uh, they were kind of thrown off by it, but. When when you're in that position, and I, I've read interviews with Lennon uh, from from his later years, where you know he he basically said that that wasn't what they were signing on for. Well, no, it wasn't. And like I said, they themselves couldn't explain the phenomenon that was the Beatles. They were asked to explain it, but they couldn't. Anywhere they went, they were asked, "What is this? What are you guys doing? What's this? What is going on?" Anywhere they went, anywhere in the world. That was one of the first questions at the press releases. Watch it. Well, how do you do this? What's going on? They couldn't explain it themselves. But, I mean, that's like also, you know, uh, uh, it's like a reporter walking up to Brad Pitt and saying, you know, why are you so handsome? It's you really, when you're when you're living inside of it, it's hard to explain it. Well, I suspect it is. It's, it's difficult to explain. Um, but, like I said, it was a common thread in all of their interviews. It, it's just... To me, there's definitely some sort of supernatural force behind it, whether it be for the right reasons or the wrong reasons. There was something beyond just 
four guys in a band. Well, look, like I said, I'm a Beatles fan. I sensed something, not just me. I'm no different than millions of other Beatles fans. A lot of us have sensed something. But then all of a sudden, like I said, with these clues, and all of a sudden now, all of a sudden, things started to make sense to me. You know, it's easy to say, dismiss the stuff as coincidence, and I don't really want to hear synchronicity, because like John Lennon himself said, there are no such things as coincidences. This stuff is more than coincidence, and that's one of the reasons this book was written, to try to come to terms or an under, reach an understanding of what was going on and try to explain it. it. Well, never. It's a mystery. You can't really explain a mystery. It's like me trying to describe or explain magic. You can't do it. But you can open up lines of discussion, which is exactly what this book was intended to do. And it certainly does. And, and one, the main point of discussion is the possibility that the reason they achieved this level of success was between a, a pact between John Lennon and the devil. And, and this is not a new idea, especially even in music. Uh, the idea of someone selling their soul for fame and popularity. Well, it's, it, you're, you're doing a great job on this interview. <laughs> You're hitting, you're hitting the nail on the head each and every time with these questions. This, this book, I put nothing in here that wasn't already in the public domain. I mean, yes, there's a, an interesting, different spin on it, and the stuff presented itself to me, these clues that I, don't, I can't explain. It's inexplicable why no one else in all the years of looking at these pictures didn't see the things that I saw for the first time. But, again, like you say, oh, this pact with the devil, you show me a contract. People want to see proof. Mm-hmm. I don't have a contract. I don't have a thing written in blood. But what I do have is the lyrics, the songs, the titles, the the pictures. That stuff is documented in my book and in the public domain. Now, as far as packs with devil, yes, this Marlowe wrote, you know, Faust back in 1604. Centuries, there's been talk of packs with Satan, packs with the devil. This is nothing new. And all I'm saying is it is uncanny how if you look at these documented packs in literature through the eons, through the centuries, they follow a set recipe or pattern. Well, and it's no different for John Lennon. That pattern is right there in black and white. Well, what a lot of people might not uh, be able to differentiate with, with Johann Faust is it's a story. It's a book but it was actually based on a real person. I think a lot of people kind of lose sight of that, that it's not just a, an allegorical story. He was an actual person, and this was not something that was just made up as a, as a plot device. People actually said this about him. Oh, that's absolutely correct. That's, that pope Sylvester was a real pope. Mm-hmm. They said he sold his soul to the devil. And even in there's cases in biblical times of people making the, such an arrangement. Well, look, you know, it, it, the thing is, is that... It, Evil exists in the world. Now, people don't, some people, atheists don't believe in God, or, but the fact is, if there's, if there's good, there's evil, if there's God, there's Satan, the yin and the yang. You can't have one without the other. And all through time, evil exists in this world. It's, it exists. Read the news. And I mean, I'm not trying to preach to people about Christianity, but I'm just going to use examples of examples that I know because I was raised a Catholic. I mean, the Catholic Church. Um, does have, you know, it has procedures it follows for demonic possessions. You know, exorcisms are a real thing. It's a real thing in life. And I happen to believe that. And I happen to believe in those things. 
Well, there's certain character traits of people who uh, fall under the influence of the devil in in our research as, as paranormal investigators and uh, there's a certain kind of almost like a set pattern of someone's life and a lot of times somebody who grows up very disillusioned uh, somebody who doesn't have a lot of strong connections there's arguments about whether or not the person has to be extremely religious to enter into league with the devil or uh, completely avowed of religion, but either way, there seems to be a character type who looks towards Satan for some sort of assistance, and certainly the way John Lennon grew up, uh, he, he had what might be a perfect case study for that. Right. Now, it's interesting because what you're doing here is drawing on things that you've read and things that are documented in time and in history, which is exactly what I did with this book. You draw on things that you can document, and this stuff is all documented. And it, John Lennon, I'll tell you, talk about a disillusioned life, and I'm probably speaking here to many people who understand about John Lennon, lifetime uh, Beatle fans, but John Lennon grew up with a very, had a very difficult life. I mean, at one point in his life, you know, his father had abandoned him, his mother had abandoned him. He, he started to have a little bit of a relationship with his mother, and she was tragically killed by an off-duty policeman, run over, died a violent death when he was a young man, 17 years old. So he didn't have a mother, he didn't have a father, he didn't have a job, he was failing out of school. He, uh, he, uh, um, his band had broke all but broken up over in Germany, they were deported. He had nothing. He had nowhere to turn. Nowhere. He had nothing. He had to go maybe somewhere else. That's somewhere not of this earth. And that's when you reach that point, and you know when you get to your most desperate. That's usually when uh, when he appears. Well, I'll tell you. You know, everybody, myself included, you were humans. We have evil thoughts. Everybody has evil thoughts. But what you don't do is nurture those evil thoughts. You don't nurture them or bring them along. You don't, certain doors are not meant to be opened because once you open those doors, they cannot be closed. Well, whether it was a product of, of who he became, uh, maybe as a result of such a pact, or whether it was the way he was all the time, Lennon certainly did embrace some of those dark thoughts uh, much of the time. Even even if he did it for comical effect or, you know, just to make some sort of offhand comment, uh, he did have kind of a macabre side to him. Well, there was a macabre side, and, and, and it's interesting we could use those terms as macabre. People like to say offbeat, offbeat humor, un, you know, uh, colorful, colorful, uh, colorful personality. But the thing is there's prescribed things in life that are called blasphemies. Mm-hmm. A blasphemy is, it's the, uh, again, I refer to, the, to religion here, is the only unforgivable sin. Blasphemy is unforgivable. And, it, and in the book, I don't really want to go into it. Um, to, you know, to be, I don't mean to be elusive, but it's pretty tough stuff. Um, and you read the book. Some of the things early on that John Lennon did mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, are classified as blasphemy. And it's one of, the, one of the recipes, one of the ingredients to a pact is you must you must do blasphemies, and it's well documented in the book by those people that were there and saw these things. It's pretty tough stuff. Well, I mean, he's forever linked with uh, probably the biggest blasphemy he could have uh, ever possibly done, and that's uh, the, the we're more popular than Jesus comment. Well, I'm, I'm telling you, that's what, that is, you know, you could say, oh, it's just you taking it out of context or whatever you want to call it. I don't see it that way, and a lot of people didn't either. You know, the thing is, like this whole thing with John Lennon, and it, it, it's interesting because 
if let's just for the sake of discussion here, let's just say that he did make a pact. What might that pact? How might that thing gone down? Well, you know, let me tell you something. He, when Elvis hit the scene, it's documented that you know he absolutely adored Elvis and he wanted to be bigger than Elvis. And all it was was Elvis, Elvis, Elvis. That's all he talked about. He learned all the songs. He drove people, people that were close to him, like his aunt Mimi, crazy with this Elvis thing. Well, if he's going to make a pact with the devil, it might go down something to the effect: Hey, you know what? You you want to make make a pact with me? I want to be more popular than Elvis. Well, then how about this? How about the Satan might have said something to the effect, you know what? That's nothing. I can make you more popular than Jesus. And, for, and then he self-proclaimed, we're more popular than Jesus, which is a form of blasphemy. Well, then you said that the quote, you know, people might accuse you of taking that quote out of context, using it in that fashion, but it, really not. I mean, if you look at the entire quote, he says, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. We are more popular than Jesus. So what he was saying is essentially as the Beatles transcend religion and they transcend the idea of worshiping jesus christ i mean that's the way i always read it whenever i heard the quote well that's it it's you know let's chalk it up to interpretation mm-hmm. it's interpretation how do you interpret it i don't interpret it any any other way than than way it seems to be written for me it, it just seems to me like it's a quote sure i mean he kind of when he said it it kind of came off in an offhand manner but he said it as somebody who didn't sound like he was putting much stock in the idea of uh, of jesus and 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 we know from many other from his lyrics and from what he said throughout his life you know he might he he bought into the idea of god but he wasn't buying jesus well he certainly did i mean and and it's documented. I always just turn to the music. I turn to the lyrics. You know, and I found out there ain't no Jesus going to come from this guy. You know, he, he, he absolutely, I don't believe in Jesus in the song God. It's documented. He, he said that. But that's because he said it doesn't mean he doesn't believe in it. He turned to Christianity with, you know, a couple of times in his life, and one time in particular it's documented, where he actually turned for religion. But the thing is, he didn't get what he wanted out of religion. He didn't get what he was looking for, and it's so not uncommon with John Lennon when he didn't get what he wanted. It was pretty. He was pretty rough with things and people, and he was very tough with religion. Well, so we're, we're, let's just take things back a little bit. It's 1960, and as you said, things were not going well uh, when they were in Germany. Uh, there was issues. I know that George Harrison got deported because he wasn't old enough to, to be playing in the clubs and and to be over there. But so essentially, they're they're a, a band that is a acquired a following uh, enough to show that it's worth sticking together but outside circumstances are keeping them from doing so and you think that that is the point where if there was a pack made it would have been at that point in time well yeah again like i said i I do not have a contract written in blood or anything Mm -hmm. of that nature but i'm just saying what's interesting is is that you're i'm in an i'm an interesting i'm in an interesting spot in as much as i can do reverse engineering i can go back in time and look back in time and see and look for things that may have happened that were different or maybe that lend um you know credence to what i'm saying and what i'm getting at is john lennon died a violent death in 1980 and so these packs are you know supposedly documented as 20 year packs and it's interesting because even in the sergeant pepper song it was 20 years ago today sergeant pepper taught the band to play now that was a mccartney tune i understand but lennon often helped him with lyrics so we don't know i mean but those lyrics are there it was 20 years ago i often marvel at that who was sergeant pepper that taught those guys to play so what 
I said was, all right, I'm going to do it since I have all these volumes of books. Like I said, I collected magazines and books and articles, and I kept everything I've ever gotten. I don't know why, but I did all through my life. And one of the things that came up was I went back 20 years in time to December 27, 1960. It was a town hall ballroom in Litherland, England. And on that night, it says, you know, I, I wrote in the book that the Beatles revoked the response noticeably different than anything in the past. The scene is dark. It's documented in Mark Lewison's Complete Beatles Chronicle. You know, as the, as the curtain opens up and Paul launches in himself into Little Richard's Long Tall Sally, everyone spontaneously crushed forward to the front of sweat, uh, to the front of stage, you know, swept away by the group's magnetism. That was a turning point for the Beatles in 1960. Something changed. And it's documented by them as a turning point. Like even Ringo says something to the fact Pete Best says, not Ringo, Pete Best was the drummer at the time. He says, we never looked back at that point. And then recently I saw on the Internet where, um, in fact, I even talked to some people in Liverpool, and that ballroom still exists today. And they want to put a plaque up there because they said, this is where the Beatles were born. They themselves remember and documented that night in 1960. That is an odd thing to have happen, that the people in Liverpool, that there's those people that want to put a plaque up on that ballroom, you know, calling reference to the fact that this was the birth of the Beatles in 1960. It was a turning point. Well, if you would like to call in with any questions for Joe, uh, just give us a call, 508-996-0500, or you can, uh, you can also email them to us right here on the Spooky Studio, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com. And, uh, Joe, was it kind of a gradual wave of building, this Beatlemania that began in England? Did it kind of happen over the course of months, or was it instantaneously right after that December 27th? the show, it seemed to have swept the nation. Well, that was it. That was a turning point, and things really started to pick up for them in a very quick in a very quick time. They were hooked up with Brian Epstein. They got their rec- they got their first record deal. You know, people would say, "Oh, they weren't an overnight success." But blah 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 blah. You know, they 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 were. And I mean, those pictures were documented. The Beatles were together. You know, from the time they were young boys in in the in the fifties. No, I agree. They, it wasn't. They weren't an overnight success. However, once that notoriety started, it it was very rapid. I mean, how do you go from a, an obscure group in 1962 um, in England to playing in front of? 50 million people in the United States of America in a matter of a year, a year and a half. How does that happen? It's very difficult to explain. Well, one thing I'd like to say to the listeners, too, is that I invite them all to go to thelennonprophecy.com, all one word, thelennonprophecy.com, and then you'll find that I have um, links to, um, you can contact me directly if you'd like some, you know, if if you want to talk or confidentially um, email me. I welcome all communications. And then also um, there's clues and things that you might find of interest and links to my blog site um, that you might want to take a quick look at because there might be some things that um, pique your interest. Sure, again, it's the LendonProphecy.com, and it's also linked up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. That's right. <laughs> and it, when when you look at some of the uh, you know the early history of the Beatles, and, and all right, in England, you know, they were kind of the native sons, and we can understand why popularity might have gained here. Uh, one emailer came into the studio, uh, Sean, says that maybe one of the reasons why they were so popular instantaneously in America was because 
at the time, America was coming out of the assassination of JFK, and we were kind of a country that was uh, in a shifting consciousness, and they might have been the perfect ailment, kind of the uh, upbeat antithesis to what people had been feeling at that point. Well, I'll tell you, isn't it interesting how it was at that precise moment in time that the Beatles appeared? I mean, is that just happenstance? Is that coincidence? Or is that actually something that was prescribed to happen the way it did happen? I mean, if you were Satan and you were plotting something of this nature, you would want to do it as quickly as you could, but you would have to bide your time. You'd have to wait for the right moment. What's that right moment? That point in time was an interesting point in time because it was the first time in the history of mankind that there was such a thing as mass media and televisions. You know, five years earlier, there weren't half as many televisions as they were at that time. It is an absolute critical point in time. It well, wouldn't have happened any sooner than it did. I think you allude to it in the book, but also just looking back at the history of the Beatles, prior to really a few weeks before their arrival in America, they'd released some singles here, but they didn't really catch on. It wasn't as huge a success as it was in England, but it seemed like it was timing, timing itself with their arrival. Well, that was one of the things that was interesting was they, they themselves said that they didn't want to come to America because previous to the Beatles, there have been there were no English groups on the charts in the United States, mm-hmm. but they themselves said they didn't want to come here until they had a number one. Well, lo and behold, they had a number one by the time they got here. And, and not to demean any Beatles music, I would never really do that, but out of all the ones to hit number one, I want to hold your hand, really? I know. It's amazing. I mean, and, and what was interesting about that is... If this is a, once again, this, nothing has happened like this since. Um, and for some of the listeners who didn't, who don't, aren't familiar with the Beatles history, they didn't have just the number one song. They had the number one song, two song, three song, four song, five song. They had the top five songs at the same time. And I, don't, I don't think that's ever happened since either. No. Oh, no. All right. Well, we have one call here. We can try and take this before we have to take a break for the network news. Good evening. We're on Spooky South Coast with Jonas Goda. How are you doing? Hey, Tim. It's Craig Anderson. How are you? Hey, Craig. How are you? We're doing fantastic. Sorry. I, I hope I'm not going to repeat anything. I am on the road and headed back from a Civil War show. But I just wanted to touch base with you. I just popped in the house just for a second. And, number one, I want to say happy birthday to you and the crew. I've been missing an action for the past couple of weeks. And I apologize for everybody on the fan site. We haven't been keeping that up, uh, but that'll change. Well, thank the, you. One thing to, to keep in mind about the Beatles as we're going into this, and Joseph maybe can elaborate on this, or maybe he already has. I'm like, again, I apologize. But coming out of the 50s, going into the 60s, you had the the, the dawning of, a, of Aquarius, as, a, as you would say, to where we went from a society that was sick of war, Going into the uh, a new age where we wanted a a figure for ourselves, and as you grew into that, you went from in the fifties, you know, the kid kids going out to play, the parents saying, "Yeah, hey, don't bother us, we're having a good time, don't come home bloody," <laughs> you know. So, mm-hmm. uh, and then you come to the generation saying, "Hey, we're trying to find ourselves," and I think that played a huge, huge part into what the Beatles became. Oh, they seem to and, become a voice for, for that generation. Well, yeah, right you, know, you look at, exactly, you know, you're looking at today's uh, campaign, we want change. Well, then, this was something that was so foreign that it 
basically stapled the entire generation there. And it gave them an outlet to say, hey, this is so different than what our parents ever thought of. This is uniquely ours, and this is why we want it and why we're here. And maybe, you know, it was uh, just a, I don't know if it was a passion or just that way of change that said, wow, that's different. Well, what do you we think want of, to be different. What do you think of that, Joe, as being the well, voice I, of, of the people? Yeah, well, I think, like you say, it was it, it was poised to happen. Something was going to happen. It, the generation was changing. That change had not yet happened. Again, we're talking about early 1964. People are running around in Bermuda shorts. Guys are still wearing hats and smoking cigarettes and things. You, it was a very innocent time, and it, it, it there wasn't the promiscuity like we have now, the drugs. That stuff didn't, the free, the free love, that stuff didn't happen until that early period in the 60s. And I don't know but to think that, you know, it depends on who you talk to and how you want to spin it. But the Beatles were absolutely at the forefront. They were at the eye of the hurricane of the, of the sexual and drug revolution of the 60s. And right. I think that they were an intricate part of the freedom, and they were a key element in bringing around the change that happened. I mean, let's face it, people worshipped the Beatles. They followed the Beatles. Whatever the Beatles did, they wanted to do. The Beatles played guitars, they played guitars. The Beatles grew their hair long, they grew their hair long. The Beatles did drugs, they did drugs. I mean, it's like I say, it was an innocent time. But if you watch even, like, and I remember, like, A Hard Day's Night, and they mentioned the word, oh, we're going to go to an orgy. People, I didn't know, I was a young boy, I didn't know that orgy. But that was mentioned in one of their in in, in our day's night. Yeah. You know how innocent was that? Am I misinterpreting or missing something? I don't think so. All right. Well, thanks for the call, Craig. We're up against the break here, but uh, thanks for the call and thank you for the donation. All right, sir. Thank you. Bye bye. Right, have a good night, and thank you to everybody that's been donating on SpookySouthCoast.com as well. Uh, we've, we're definitely going to be. Uh, Easily taking care of the podcasting this year, uh, as well as many other things. So we are coming up on the news, as I said, Joe, but we'll take a break. When we come back on the other side, I'd like to really start to get into some of these clues and not only that show that maybe there was something going on between Lennon and Satan, but also how he prophesized his own murder. And, again, the name of the book is The Lennon Prophecy, A New Examination of the Death Clues of the Beatles. It's available through Joe's website, thelennonprophecy.com, and also right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com as well we'll be right back after the news we're not even gonna do the weekend weird because we've got so much stuff to talk about so we'll be right back with more here on spooky south coast Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor, Matt Moniz. I just wanted to check the uh, the iPod there, Matt, to make sure that I used the remasters. Uh. I know you don't care because you don't like the Beatles, but to me, I, I find the remasters uh, fascinating um, just to hear them in a different manner and... 
you're so used to hearing the mono mix, and when you hear it with uh, the new stereo remasters, it, it does kind of change the music quite a bit. And when you hear it with Jonah's Go to Theory in mind, and you go back and you look at some of the things that are said in the music, it certainly changes your mind. And the book is called The London Prophecy, A New Examination of the Death Clues of the Beatles by Joseph Nisgoda, and his website is thelennonprophecy.com. If you want to pick up a copy of the book, it's also linked up on the front of SpookySouthCoast.com as well. And it definitely well, during the course of this next hour while we're discussing this, go to thelennonprophecy.com and see some of these clues for yourself. Joe's got them posted up right on the website. And we were talking, uh, you know, during the, the break, I was I was taking some calls from, from people who were calling into the studio with different questions and different ideas uh, for this hour of the discussion. And, and one caller was telling me about a ministry that pushes the idea of music uh, being a way to kind of have a discussion with your own soul, to kind of bring things into your own soul. And certainly the Beatles music, Joe, has done that for a lot of people. Well, it definitely does. It, 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 like I said, there's something about music. It's, in, it's, it's like intuitive. It's just it takes you to places you might not normally go. And that's why I say it, it is a very powerful tool. And you can only hope that it would be used for good as opposed to evil. But that's kind of the crux of this whole idea of if Lennon did sell his soul uh, for the popularity of the Beatles and to make them such a huge influential act, what maybe have been, and there's always in these bargains that people make with the devil during history, there's always these stories of, you know, somebody kind of twisting it on Satan and kind of getting the best of him one way or another. And that might have been what Lennon was able to do here because even if it was nefarious circumstances that led to their popularity, it's done so much good in the decades since to have this music and to have the message in this music and just the influence it's had on people's lives. Well, like I say, there's, a, it's, it's, there's different ways of looking at it. Um, for example, like sugarcoating something, and John Lennon even uses that term himself about you sugarcoat anything and people will buy into it. And I mean, like, for example, the song Imagine, many people interpret that, yes, it's nice to say, oh, it's John Lennon at his best. But there are many people, and documented in article after article, that don't view the song Imagine like that at all. It's like an anti-Christian song. Imagine there's no heaven, no hell below us, above us only sky. I mean, it sounds nice and sweet, and it's got a really nice melody. But the lyrics, it's very troubling if you listen to that. It's almost written by someone who might be in denial. Well, I've always been somebody who who's thought that it was a, a positive song, but... You can almost kind of see where it's uh, its almost like an anarchist call to action. Right. Even aside from the religious aspect of it, I mean, it's basically saying, you know, we don't need any of these chains on us, and uh, it can almost be interpreted that way, too. Well, I agree with you on that. But there has been, I mean, that's the one thing, though, is there has been uh, so many different interpretations of what, what they were trying to say, and nobody can even really take the Beatles at face value anymore when they comment on their own songs, because... It became so much bigger than even them that they lost a handle on what it was all about. And maybe people are putting deeper meanings on, on songs that they just say, hey, we thought it was kind of a good tune. Like, look at Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I mean, everybody in the world now, if you ask them what that song is about, they're going to tell you Lucy, Sky, Diamonds. It's all about LSD. And for so many years, uh, Lennon tried to say, no, it's just, you know, it's my little version of Lewis Carroll. Right. Well, that's that's the interesting aspect of these Beatles songs, is that it's so many people were influenced and saw something mystical about these songs. 
And that's what the Lennon prophecy is about. It's about now there's a lot of songs, there's millions of songs written and published, but none are dissected and analyzed like the Beatles. What is it about this music that causes us to look at it and re-examine it and challenge it? What is so unique about this? There's something underlying these lyrics in these tunes. There's something else. There's more to it. Well, it it certainly has uh, has grasped everybody who is a Beatles fan, and and these these lyrics are kind of burned into their memory, and it almost goes beyond just the fact that you like the music. It's they're searing for a different reason, and and some of these lyrics you think might be clues to the fact that there was a a sort of arrangement made between John Lennon and the Devil. Well, it's interesting because uh, I, right after the break, you were playing the song. Um, um, you know, the song that you were playing. John Lennon mentions the tune in, in the song "Glass Onion," which was recorded in 1968. The Beatles themselves got off on this whole death clues thing, and John Lennon in that song says, "And here's another clue for you all: the walrus was Paul." Now. Looking back on that, you could say, oh, it's very innocent, John playing with words, talking about he's getting the fans going, the Beatles were bought into this whole thing themselves. Well, there's something wrong with that whole timeline. He wrote and recorded that song in 1968. No one even knew about the Beatles, the Paul McCartney death clues until 1969. So when he wrote those lyrics, who was he writing those lyrics to? I mean, they didn't know about it until 1969, but maybe the Beatles had planned it ahead of time. And oh, well, that that's a nice thought to think that, but I don't I don't buy that at all. I don't I I think there's more to it than that. I think there's more to it. Well, either way, I mean, uh, it was Paul McCartney dressed up as the Walrus on the Magical Mystery Tour album. So. Well, that's debatable. I mean, it, the, the, the thing, I know that's the thing is, but the thing is, that's that's a, you know my interpretation. Sure, no, I understand. John, John Lennon, no, but John Lennon was the Walrus. I mean, it's very clear if you look at the pictures and Paul's wristwatch, and the Walrus was definitely John. But I think that that might have been a clue. Something, and here's another clue for you all: the Walrus was Paul. Maybe it was John's attempt to tell us that, hey, we got it all wrong. Mm-hmm. These clues weren't about, these death clues weren't about Paul McCartney. John was the walrus. They were about him. Well, I mean, either, either when you look at the death clues, whether it be for John Lennon or Paul McCartney, and you want to say that, you know, if, if you want to believe the shiny happy version of it, it was kind of a joke the Beatles were playing and, and they were kind of in on it and, and to begin with, but, when you look at how deep some of them go, it's it's almost like when you play Dark Side of the Moon while you're watching The Wizard of Oz, and you think to yourself, it's a perfect fit. It's too perfect. There's no way they could have planned that because, you know, it just would have taken away too much of what they were trying to do on the surface to well, decide to do all this stuff on, under the surface. Well, and, and that's where this book took a turn for me because... I, I found very, it became very clear to me that these clues were about John Lennon. They absolutely prophesied his death to the day, to the hour, to the location, the who, the what, the when, the where. It is all documented. And again, again, it's like reverse engineering. It's easy to say that now. But no, it is. And I say, like, for example, that song, Glass Onion, it's interesting Here's another clue for you all. The walrus was Paul. Now, there's a clue. They say the word clue. There it is. It's very clear, black and white. You can interpret it any way you want. Those aren't the ones that bothered me. The ones that bothered me were the ones that prophesied about John's death that I couldn't come to grips with, that had to be something more 
to it than just coincidence. There's too many of them. Now, I want to point to the one that really kind of started me on this whole campaign was in 1967, the Beatles put out an album called Magical Mystery Tour. And in the Magical Mystery Tour album, there was a booklet. And in the booklet, there are pictures of the Beatles in the movie. They made a movie called Magical Mystery Tour. And there's a picture of John Lennon walking out of like a ticket agency. And in the background of this picture of John Lennon, it says, the best way to go is by MDC. And, of course, that turned out to be a fatal message, in my opinion. The best way to go is by Mark David Chapman, MDC, the guy that murdered John Lennon. And it doesn't say, have a sunny trip with MDC. It says the best way to go is by MDC. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I knew that when I put this in the book that people would dispute it and say, well, geez, you know, M&D Coaches is a famous um, transportation company in England. It doesn't say that. This picture, it's uncanny. If you look at it in that album, it's cropped off. It says the best way to go is by MDC. It's cropped off. It's, and that's the, that's just one of many. And, and, and yeah, I mean, it's it, it, there's... Uh, I'm trying. How did that clue get there? You know, John Lennon was a prophet. Did he put that in there? Who knowingly put that in there? Or did it just happen by happenstance? I I don't know how familiar you are, uh, Joe, with the idea of ghost boxes, and and they they call them Frank's boxes, and they're basically they're um, radios that are manipulated to sweep random radio waves and what they do is supposedly spirits can communicate over them like a Ouija board where the words are out there in the radio broadcasts and they can kind of just the spirits can grab whatever words they need to get a point across to the person that's listening oh from different stations sure and and the the one thing that you need to remember when you're using one of these devices is sure you may hear something that you know is a baseball broadcast or you know is a jingle for a, a popular restaurant or something in the area but the key is to not worry about where it's coming from and to listen to what word is being used and that's almost the same thing with these clues we understand what they're referring to or we understand like with that photo what it's referring to but you need to look at it in the context of how it was used and like you said in that case it was cropped in a certain fashion so they're just using what was there to kind of get the message across well it, it's it's pretty deliberate i mean i it's it's interesting in the wording the way it takes place and again that's just one clue of many but these other ones that they just can't, to me, they, you know, like I said, it's like you, you would use the word paranormal. They can't be explained. They're inexplicable. Well, one of the uh, the most controversial uh, in terms of the photographic evidence is the Yesterday and Today album cover. And I know that that's one that you've encountered a lot of controversy when discussing that as a, as a clue. Well, it is, and, it, and it's interesting because, like I said, this book started out fairly innocently uh, as, a, as a book about the prophecy of John Lennon's murder. It had nothing to do with Satanism or anything to do with the demonics, the side of this aspect of it. But once I started looking into the aspects of this book and starting to do more in-depth research, it became clear to me, and I was dr- taken down a path um, towards this whole Satanism uh, aspect of the Beatles. Now, for people that aren't familiar with the Yesterday and Today album, it's a picture of the Beatles that was taken in 1966 for one of their albums. And in this picture, it, it depicts the Beatles wearing um, um, butcher smocks, and there are um, there are chunks of meat laid over them with 
cut up dolls and decapitated baby dolls uh, strewn all and laid all over them. I mean, it's a very grotesque picture. Now, I see that as infanticide. Now, what is infanticide? Infanticide, um, again, this isn't Jonah's Goda's interpretation of what infanticide is. This is what's documented. Um, one of the highest forms of Satan worship is infanticide, to, to mutilate and cut up an infant virgin baby. And that album cover, to me, looks like infanticide. And in fact, um, it's not even my interpretation. If you go back in time, like I do, um, I did a lot of research for this book in 1966, and read some of the articles that were written. There was such an outcry that all of the albums were recalled, immediately pulled from the shelves, and brought back in and destroyed. And then... Um, the articles that were written, they used the people of the time, the the um, authors and the reporters of the time used the word infanticide, which I didn't even know what that meant in 1966. I was a young little kid. But yet, I go back now, things weren't as innocent as people and rosy as they'd like them to be. And it's, it's not a matter of... Uh... Sure, there was some degree of artistic expression involved, especially with album covers. You know, in the late '60s and through the '70s, it was it was a art form unto itself. But when you're trying to market a Beatles album, you kind of want to portray the Beatles in the best possible light. And and that's not that's not an album. I mean, that's not like it's the Beatles went into a studio and said, "Let's make this album." That was a lot of reissues, and and it was a, a compilation of stuff from other material, right? Right. Well, it was. And the, and the album cover itself, like I said, was specifically taken. Those pictures were specifically taken to be released um, on an album. And, I mean, what's interesting is that, you know, John Lennon spearheaded the whole thing. He was definitely involved and pushed to have that as an album cover. And, you know, you want artistic expression. People go back in time and rewrite history. I mean, Paul McCartney is even accused of that right now. In any of his interviews, people accuse him of rewrite history. Even the most avid Beatles fans will say that. But people go back and rewrite history, and they say, oh, that was the Beatles protesting the Vietnam War. <laughs> Nowhere will you find anything written about the Vietnam War in 1966 in relationship to the Beatles. Nowhere. That's just people rewriting history. If you read what was written back then, you'll see it was it was pretty grotesque and pretty unexplainable. I mean, if you wanted to do something artistic, there are many different ways of expressing yourself in art than to do it in, a, in, the, in that particular form and fashion. I mean, it, I, I invite everyone to go on the Internet and look at those pictures. I mean, it's pretty gross. Oh, you can see them right on the LennonProphecy.com. Or you can go to the website and see the one album cover that was used. Absolutely. Very disturbing. Even to this day, it's disturbing. And, and the imagery, of course, uh, is a big part of the, the Paul McCartney uh, death clues and Especially with the Sgt. Pepper album, and that's the same case with the uh, with the idea of the Lennon prophecy. We all know about the trick of putting the mirror up to the drum on on the Sgt. Pepper cover, and you get the uh, one nine. Uh, I want to get it right. One nine nine. Yeah, one nine. He died. One nine. He died. Yeah, the the Roman numeral one, and that was part of, like I say, that was a Gary Patterson clue. Um, and I acknowledge Gary. Gary, um, you know, wrote the book um, The Walrus Was Paul, in which he documented. And Gary came up with that clue himself. He put that mirror there for the first time. And it's interesting because that was an interpretation of a Paul McCartney death clue. But when I looked at it, I saw it as I one nine. He died.
is just bizarre. It just well, it's not you know, and it's interesting that it's not even just the Beatles. I mean, that's just the book that I wrote about. I couldn't write another book. I, I this is the only book I've ever written. I'm not in the entertainment field. I'm not a writer. I, I mean, by trade, this is the only book I've ever written, and probably will be the only book I'll ever write. And again, this was my destiny to put this thing out. Many books are written about the evil and the things like with Led Zeppelin's ties with Satanism and Alex Alex Crowley and all this guy and um. Stay away to heaven backwards. This, yeah, that kind of stuff. Going all, always, way, all the way back to Robert Johnson and Tommy Johnson, we're talking about the same thing, the, the deal with know, the devil. This is nothing new, I mean, as far as the ties to Satan. But I, I, what I always tell people to do is just go back and look at the lyrics and look at these things for yourself. I mean, one of the things I, I'd like to talk about, like I say, we're talking about John Lennon and, and Satan and a and matter of interpretation. Well, he... He wrote these songs about, like, there ain't no Jesus going to come from the sky. I don't believe in Jesus. We're more popular than Jesus. These were all things that he said that are documented. I didn't make this stuff up. It's there. Look at it for yourself. And this is the way he wrote his songs. But then, just before he died, with a month, a month, maybe a few weeks before he died, he wrote a song and did a demo of this song called Help Me to Help Myself. And this, like I said, I addressed to the caller to interpret this the way you would interpret it, because it is a very difficult subject. John Lennon is an icon. We look back at him with very fuzz and warm, warm feelings. But this song was called Help Me to Help Myself, and it was written, um, it was first released, Yoko released it 20 years after his death, so no one even knew this song existed. And he uses the, lyri the lyrics in this, well, I've tried so hard to stay alive. But the angel of destruction keeps on hounding me all around. I, I think odd. it's a lot of, like, Monday morning quarterbacking with you because it's been, like, 40-plus years since the Beatles put out just about all their stuff. And you're picking apart all their lyrics as the years go on. I mean, I, back then, I really, really think that it didn't mean much to them. They just came up with stuff that, that, were, that was going to, like, freak people out. Well, I mean, that, is, that is kind of always a dangerous slope. Hindsight's I mean, always twenty twenty. Even even nowadays, a lot of bands come up with like freaky lyrics, and they they want to shock people. That's how they make money. They want to shock people. A lot of these teenagers and, and stuff. They think stuff like that's cool, and I think stuff like that was cool back in the sixties. Well, you know, it's interesting because, like, the, the thing is, a lot of these clues were subliminal. Like, I can't explain. They weren't even like I said. They're they're hidden. They're hidden, so they're not even that blatant trying to shock. I mean, one of the interesting ones was like in the song, just let me give you an example of a clue that really got me involved with this whole thing, too, I say, is like the song um, Come Together. Come Together, and he's going, that part, and the bass line comes in, shoot me. Well, if you listen, Jeff Emmerich wrote that John Lennon was saying, shoot me, shoot me, over and over again, shoot me. And you don't hear the me part because the bass line steps on it. Now, that's someone that was there and documented what John Lennon well, was saying. I, I, it's just almost like a prophecy. Not to interrupt you, Joe, but in the, in the rock band game, which, of course, was uh, it got the okay from the Beatles and from Apple, and they used the actual lyrics in that song. And in the rock band version, it clearly states that the lyric is shoot me. Yeah, so that, that I mean, that's a, that's pretty much officially an Apple uh, acknowledgement now. Yeah, that's amazing, well, isn't it? Shoot me. I think it's just like a, a shock value thing back in the 60s. They were they were ahead of their time back then. They yeah, were well, so like talented and gifted. And we're not, and certainly not. Everybody says that they're the greatest band ever. 
Yeah, they and they were for me. I mean, that's, that's why I said I, I can't explain the effect they had on me because um, I agree with you completely. They were one of a kind and unique and very talented. Well, thank you. We have another right. call coming up, so we we have to take thank that. You, Colin. They're probably going to agree with me. <laughs> Thanks. Have a good night. Bye. Oh, sorry. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Jonas Goda. How you doing? Excellent. How you doing? It's Chris from the Cape. Hey, Chris. How you doing? Just the wrong Cape. <laughs> yeah, the wrong Cape, but I'll uh, pretend for a bit. And uh, I actually disagree with the uh, the caller, so I don't agree with him. Um, but I was inspired. Great show, by the way. I was inspired to Thank look you. at the album cover you were talking about. And if you take Ringo out of the picture, for whatever it might be, and maybe that's why <laughs> Ringo's Ringo, uh, Everything in the picture is left-leaning, and every member of the band has the body parts uh, of the child on their left side, which, uh, from my experience and my research, has everything to do with Satanism. Is that? See, I don't know. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Interesting. Uh, Ringo has that. something in right facing, which might might be his, you know, rejection of what they were working on and, and any kind of pack type stuff. But everyone else, everything is leaning towards the left, and then. The two headless children are both on the left shoulders, and then um, uh, Harrison has a child's head in his left hand. Yeah. Not yeah. not to reach here, and maybe I am, but uh, since I think the late 70s or the 80s, Ringo is the only Beatle that you uh, consistently saw with a prominent cross displayed on him, too. He always had that cross in his ear. It's true. Yeah, he did. I've noticed that myself. So, I mean, I don't know if that has any kind of correlation to that at all, Chris, or if I'm, I'm reaching, but, I mean, I, I don't remember seeing another Beatle uh, prominently displaying a cross uh, except for Ringo, so. Just wanted to, uh, to throw that out there, just listening along, and uh, wanted to add to the discussion on that. So well, Thank you. And you know when, you. when we want to learn something about people that worship Satan, we always call you first. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Have a good night. Take authority. Have a good night, man. Bye-bye. That is, of course, our good friend Chris Balzano, who is a uh, – Joe, he does a lot of work uh, in, in tying in the paranormal with uh, cult crimes and serial killers and things like that. Right. Just right. some fascinating work that he's done. And uh, leave it to him to, to spot that. Yeah, yeah, to, to come up with something of that nature. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? All right. Well, and as I said before, we are going to talk about the number nine in detail here. So why don't we take a break, and when we come back, we'll examine that number, what it meant to John Lennon, what it had to do with his course in life, and uh, how it affects the Beatles uh, even today. So we'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast.
time and get a little bit open, a little bit slow. Also, uh, just a couple of quick things before we get into the number nine discussion uh, with our, our guest Jonas Goda, author of The Lennon Prophecy, A New Examination of the Death Clues of the Beatles. There we go. I was wondering where I was. Uh, Joe, I, I want to point out a few things to you that were pointed out to me by my colleagues. Uh, Matt Costa looked at the, the butcher cover of Beatles yesterday and today, and he noticed that Lennon is the only one wearing a white shirt underneath the lab coat. And also uh, Chris, who mentioned uh, the interesting thing about the left, he mentioned that Ringo is leaning left but away from the band. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing is, if you, again, um, these things have been out. This album was released in 1966. You know, decades this stuff is around. around. And the more you look at it, the more you can see. And see, that's the thing. There are things that are going to be seen for the first time as a result of, you know, maybe people looking at it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we have a call here on the line. Let's take that real quick. Good evening. You are on Spooky South Coast with Jonas Goda. How are you doing? Hey, Tim. It's Sean and Rosendale. Hey, Sean. Yeah, I'm enjoying the show. But I want to tell you one of the most freaky things of the whole the whole John Lennon death thing, and no one's touched it on, was how I heard it. I heard it from Howard Cosell on Monday Night Football in the New York. The England Patriots were playing on Monday Night Football. And, you know, I was, I was at my buddy's house. There was a bunch of us in his cellar drinking a few beers. And who comes on Howard Cosell? And he, he announces to the nation that John Lennon was shot. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of a – I mean, I guess, though, with the way the media was back then, though, it was probably three shows on at any given time because there's only three networks. But, I mean, it is kind of strange that uh, – <clears throat> excuse me. Here you have, uh, you know, one of the the leaders of the counterculture, somebody who was looked upon as, a, as an idol by many people, and that's how the news came across was in the middle of a football game. Yeah, and he did it in a hokey fashion, too. I don't know if, if Joseph heard that live. Well, as a matter of fact, I was at uh, I was I, I even mentioned it in the book. I was at college at the time in my dorm room with my study partner Mike, who Mike recently got a hold of me. He didn't even know he was mentioned in the book. We had uh, you know parted ways many many years ago, and uh, and it just so happens that we were watching Monday Night Football and Howard Cosell came on. And I mean, because they knew me, even people at college knew me as an avid Beatle fan, and especially um, I really liked John Lennon. That um, you know we were in complete disbelief. But it's ironic that it would be Howard Cosell because there's some ironies about the whole thing. John Lennon appeared um, on a Monday night football game some years earlier with Howard Cosell in 1974. Oh. He was out visiting, um, he was out on um, his, they called it the Lost Weekend out in California, and he was actually at a football game. And then in the song, he was, at, and, and Howard Cosell had him come on, and he appeared with Howard Cosell of all people. And then. Another interesting aspect of that whole football thing is in the song Revolution Number no. 9, Number no. 9, they talk about a football game, block that kick, block that kick. And that's what was going on at the time when Howard Cosell, um, um, Howard Cosell um, announced the death of John Lennon, that the, the Patriots were actually, I believe it was the Patriots, were actually kicking a field goal at the time, and the crowd was yelling, block that kick. I mean, it was just... There's so many ironies to the whole thing with Howard Cosell. And the reason Howard announced it was, of all things, John Lennon was taken that night to Roosevelt Hospital. Right. Now, while he was at the hospital, there was a producer um, for, I guess it was ABC Sports with ABCs. 
He just was in a motor, a freak motorcycle accident. He was in the emergency room sitting there when he heard of John Lennon and he saw this thing unfold. He immediately picked up the phone and called. And it was announced that night that yeah. it was before the world knew. It's uncanny. Joseph, do you relate the story about um, when the Beatles went to India and uh, they were over there with the Maharishi to enlighten themselves? And what the story I heard was he started to hit on the women that went over there with him, and then they came back and Lennon wrote a song about it. But he, he, um, he I don't know the name yeah, of the they, song. It's, no, it's, it, all it was was, yeah, no, it, it, the thing is, they were they were disillusioned because I guess it was Mia Farrow's sister. They right. talked about dear Prudence and and um, supposedly Prudence was having a difficult time over there. And um, what what happened there was um, the Maharishi. They they learned that Maharishi was um, um, was hitting on uh, Mia's sister, which really upset her. And then uh, John Lennon came back and wrote the song "Sexy Sadie," which was right. supposedly written about um, the Maharishi. And if you listen to the words, you know you made a fool of everyone, exactly. however big that's, you think you are. It's very, very yeah. interesting. And good old yeah. Lennon at his best. All right. Well, thank you, Sean. All right, guys. Thanks so much. All right. Have a good night. Bye bye. Thank you, Sean. Well, we we mentioned uh, you know the announcement of his death, and we were talking about the number nine. And John Lennon was born on October ninth in England, and he died on December ninth in England. And that number was kind of followed him throughout his life. Not only we just played Revolution Nine, and before that, Number Nine Dream, One After Nine Oh Nine. I mean, it's a recurring number so much so that when they released the remasters and the Rock Band game, they did it on Nine Nine Oh Nine. That was an interesting aspect that I thought was, in fact, I did a little bit of a press release on it. I thought, come on, don't say coincidence. I mean, they employed that number nine again. And even fans, and it's not me, this is fans, they noticed that 999, when it's inverted, forms the number 666, which is the mark of the devil. That's, you know, like I said, that's just not interpretation. That's me just seeing what the fans were were reacting to. Yeah, they, the number nine in John Lennon's life, um, is the effect is incalculable. I mean, the fact he was born on the ninth, he died on the ninth. It was seventy second Street. In fact, I ded- dedicate the better part of the chapter to the number nine. And the and the, the thing is, it wasn't just the number nine was oh just coincidence. But those songs were so prophetic. Prophetic. I mean, each and every one. If you look at the lyrics to the number nine dream or the lyrics to the the one after nine oh nine, and look at the way I interpret them in the book, I'm telling you, it is. Awful, uncanny. We say some people are born under a sign or some people are born under a number, and numerologists will tell you that everybody has a certain number that's their life path, and, and that just seems to be the number that was connected with him the most. Well, it is. And I mean, just for people who don't understand what numerology is, it's like the study of the, the cosmic code. It's like you use numbers as symbols. They display your life talents, and you can learn a lot from numbers. And there's people that, you know, spend a career. That's why this book is so complicated. It's difficult. The original cut of the book, I say it's just over 200 pages, but the original manuscript was close to 800 pages, and it got pruned down to this by, you know, editing and by, you know, by those people that do these things. Um, But the thing is, it's got so many aspects. It's so complicated. In numerology, there's a book of numerology on John Lennon um, unto itself, and I just touch on what I can to, you know, to, uh, to drive my point home. 
Well, Joe, looking at the clock here, uh, we've got about seven minutes left in the hour. Normally, that's when we're supposed to stop, but uh, I've got quite a few notes here that I still want to go over with you, so we might go a few minutes over. I know that'll be pressing into your birthday, if that's okay. Oh no, that's that's. that's I really enjoy the opportunity uh, to to you know to talk about John Lennon. This is what I do, and I, I enjoy it very much. And it'll also put us right into the anniversary of their arrival in America, too. So, yeah. so let's go. Let's do that. I think it's appropriate. Okay. Well, uh, one of the things that I, I, I did want to bring up. Uh, and we talked about it a little bit earlier on, but as Lennon maybe felt that he was coming to the end of his life, and it's it's not it's not your interpretation. It's something that he talked about in interviews and and hinted at. Uh, he often said that he felt like you know time was running out for him, and it, in the later part of his life, he did seem to make a move toward at least exploring the idea of Christianity. Uh, he had correspondence with Oral Roberts. I guess he watched a lot of TV evangelists. And uh, he was completely enamored with the uh, the TV movie uh, Jesus of Nazareth, and and that kind of made him go onto this path. I have a, a line here that he wrote from a, a letter to Oral Roberts. Uh, he said, "Can he, he being God, can he love me? I want out of hell." So it seems yeah. like he knew where he was going. Well, I think the thing is, is it, 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 people. I think they're. They become these people that enter into these packs. At least it's documented this way. They become aware of their allotted time. They become aware of the, the the you know the fact that their end is near. And that's why I refer to even some of the some of the lyrics. I just turn to the lyrics about the angel of destruction keeps hounding me around. And he says that you know I, all I wanted to do was stay alive. And then like even in 1974. At this time when, like I said, he became disillusioned with religion. And I think maybe he learned that there was no way out, that this pact was a real thing, and he wasn't going to be able to get out of it. There was no way out. And uh, he w- willingly went into it. I mean, like, the Lord doesn't allow these things. Nothing in life happens without the Lord's permission. And even something to this effect, like a contract with Satan, that still has to be, you know, it's documented as that, that it has to be allowed by the Lord. And in the lyrics of the song, I'm Scared, he says, I'm scared, I'm scared as the years roll by and the price I have to pay. I'm scared. No bell, book, or candle can get me out of this, oh no. That particular line is very unique. No bell, book, or candle can get me out of this, oh no. What he's referring to there, and it's um, Shakespeare uses the line, and it goes back to early Christianity in um, when they excommunicated someone for egregious sins like blasphemy, they would use a bell, book, and candle. I mean, it sounds odd. I mean, kind of eerie. No bell, book, or candle, because what they would do was ring a bell, close the book, and blow out the candle, and you were excommunicated. And that's what he refers to in this song. And as much as uh, he might have been familiar with Christian themes or wanted to become more familiar with Christian themes, uh, we do know that Lennon was also, it seems like he was versed in the occult, too, to some degree. I know that he he had a lot of interest in the occult, and and we've discussed in the past here, uh, he had a profound interest in UFOs. Well, he did. I mean, the thing is, he was a, 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 you know, he was a man of, great curiosity. I mean, he wouldn't have been able to achieve the greatness that he did had he not been open. That's one of the things about John Lennon and what kind of helped me get through this whole thing was that you've got to keep an open mind. Like he says, you know, living is easy with eyes closed, misunderstanding all you see. He reached out. You've got to try to keep an open mind and look at things from a different perspective, which is exactly what he did throughout his whole life. 
And it's uh, when you talk about the occult and, and supernatural forces, and and also when you talk about the idea of number nine, I mean, a lot of people know the story of Charles Manson and the Manson murders and how they wrote Helter Skelter on the walls, and they, they thought that Helter Skelter was the calling of a great coming race war, and, and they were trying to prepare for that. Um, but you talk about how Manson actually kind of misinterpreted the idea of Revolution 9 into Revelations 9. Well, that's the thing is that there's – I can't explain this. And, I mean, people try – it's not a matter of – like I said, people interpret things, and what I even included this part of in the book is, is because it's it's interesting that even people like Charles Manson, which is a you know he's in jail, he spent his whole life in jail, he's a murderer. I understand, I get it, but Charles Manson, the occult leader, you know, convicted of murder, he, he saw the song the song Revolution Nine, and for people that um, you know want to try this for themselves, which I was always intrigued by this, and I mean this was documented in the book Helter Skelter, which was written you know, some years after the uh, Manson was already convicted and put in jail. He interpreted the song Revolution 9 as Revelations 9. And if you go to the Holy Bible under Revelations 9, and I'll give you some of the quotes that Charles Manson said. And, I mean, it's odd that these things, you know, considering the centuries that have passed since the Bible was written, the parody to the Beatles is disturbingly apparent. I mean, it does it does call into question this whole thing about prophecy, because in the, the Revelation nine, um, and I, I guard, I, I warn people that this stuff is is difficult to take. But please understand that this is what Charles Manson interpreted, whether you do or I do. This is what he saw. It says, "In the days they shall seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and the death shall flee from them." And the shapes of the locusts, that's interesting, locusts, like a bug or insect, like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads, as it were, crowns like gold, and this is so unique, and their faces as the faces of men, and they had hair as the hair of women. So right there, Charles Manson interpreted that as the Beatles, because for a while, that was very unique for the Beatles. They had faces of men and hair of women. And Beatles, and they locusts, had, yeah, I can see that connection. Yeah, and then they had breastplates, as if it were breastplates of iron. So now he's, he's interpreting that as their guitars strapped to their chest and the strings. And the sound of their wings was like that of thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. Now he sees that as the loud music. i got to cut you off for one minute, Joe. we got to do the legal ID, and then when we come back, we can continue the discussion. Just a 10-second oh. quick break. Uh, there we go. We're already taking a chance by skipping the network news, but we have to at least make sure we get that in or else we're illegal. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad we, we don't <laughs> want to be illegal. Now, one other thing I want to point out. Now, that's an interpretation of the Bible, which was, you know, um, which I said was Charles Manson's interpretation of the Beatles. And it is so uncanny the way those, and of all things, number nine, Revelations nine. Now, in that, in, in the Revelations, this is something that is not in the book that one of, the people that have contacted me brought up that in the, the King James Version of the Holy Bible, in Revelation, they talk about, of course, we all know that 600, three score and six, 666 is the mark of the devil. Well, it's so odd that this person brought this to me. Under the Revelations, under chapter 13, verse 18 is where they talk about the number 666. They said, uh, they told me to go to the Bible and look at verse 5. And you interpret this for yourself. It says, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. 
and the power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months. John Lennon lived exactly to the day, 40 and 40 years, 40 and two months. Very strange. Absolutely. Well, not only is there biblical prophecy in relation to the Beatles, but as you point out in the book, and it's, it's certainly the first time I'd ever uh, heard anybody point this out for a book that's so well known, be it whether for good or bad reasons, but uh, Finnegan's Wake by Joyce, uh, that's uh, something that you have noticed a lot of correlations between what he wrote and what seems like almost nonsensical writing, but how it applies to the Beatles and John Lennon. Well, the, the thing about the Finnegan's Wake piece is that I, I became very curious because um, John Lennon, when they released the, the video for the song Starting Over, there was a, um, a picture of the, it, the room was filled with John Lennon's favorite things in life, his glasses, his Rickenbacker guitars, his Vox amplifiers, his scans around. Just go and watch the video. It's, in fact, I think it's even um, on my – if you go to, like, the LennonProphecy.com, you're going to be able to go to the blog, and you're going to be able to go to Facebook, and then a lot of this stuff you'll find on Facebook. So even if you go there, you'll, you'll actually be able to pick up the video and see some of these things. But the camera stops conspicuously at a group of books, and the only book you can read is Finnegan's Wake. And see, now that really, the camera scans the scene and momentarily stops on the shelf containing James Joyce's book, Finnegan's Wake. And it's obvious when viewing the video that a conscious decision was made to include that. And, I mean, if you ask any director, prominent props don't happen by accident. So that's what led me to take a look at Finnegan's Wake. And there, that book is very disturbing to me. James Joyce said it was a book of prophecy. John Lennon said that he had seen, and that John Lennon, I mean, it's documented that he absolutely adored the book Finnegan's Wake and read the book Finnegan's Wake, um, that he read that there were, he read and told, he told people that he saw his death prophesized in books, in books that he had. And I mean, one of the lines from Finnegan's Wake, and there's so many, it says, he had to die, it, the beetle, he did it himself. Very odd. Well, before we go, uh, Matt's going to play a little clip for us that comes from the Imagine film. We're going to take a quick break, um, and then we'll discuss. I want to get into Mark David Chapman before we call oh. it a night. Okay, that's a good idea. But Matt's going to play a little quick cut from us from the film Imagine, uh, in which John Lennon is relating a letter that he got. And it's a, it's a fascinating clip, and it's something that if you haven't watched the film, uh, you might not know about. So we're just going to run that, and then we'll be back after a quick break, and we'll wrap things up here on Spooky South Coast. Dear Mr. Lemon, from information I received while using a Ouija board, I believe that there will be an attempt to assassinate you. The spirit that gave me this information was Brian Epstein. She's not a girl who misses much. Trust. 
Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor, Matt Moniz. And we'll say hello to Eric Lavoie, who's been here hanging out in the studio with us all night. But uh, we're wrapping up the final segment of our discussion with Joe Nisgoda, author of The Lennon Prophecy, A New Examination of the Death Clues of the Beatles. If you do have a question for Joe and you want to get it in before we wrap things up, 508-996-0500. 1-877-996-1420. You can email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com. His website is TheLennonProphecy.com, and you can get the book there, or you can get it through SpookySouthCoast.com, linked up right on the front page. And we played uh, we played that clip before the break of Lennon reading the letter that he got, saying that the spirit of Brian Epstein had come through a... Uh, Ouija board and told somebody that he was going to be assassinated and then of course that's exactly what happened Joe uh, Mark David Chapman is an interesting figure in all of this because he seems to certainly have been driven by forces uh, that he was totally unaware of well that's the thing is with with and I use the name but carefully Mark David Chapman you see Beetle, avid Beatle fans don't even like to give any credence to him or mm-hmm. what his act or what he did or to you know to um, to promote um, what he was trying to do with murdering John Lennon. The fact is that they, they refer to him, Beatle fans will refer to him as the man who shall remain nameless, and rightfully so, because John, he did kill John Lennon in a very violent fashion. But the thing is, is that, like I say, that clue was one of the things that really brought my attention to this whole subject of prophecy, the fact that the best way to go is by MDC, Mark David Chapman. Mark David Chapman... Um, it's, his life paralleled John Lennon's in so many aspects, and leading up to that very moment when he was on the street with John Lennon, 20 years of momentum pent up. Um, at that very moment, he pulled that gun, and he heard voices, demonic voices, telling him to do it, do it, do it, repeating. He, In fact, that's where he got his strength from. Um, in order to perpetrate this crime, he, like I said, I mentioned earlier about those people that open doors that cannot, they cannot close. Mark Chapman, like I say, brought this upon himself almost and opened doors that couldn't be closed. And he, um, he pulled that trigger because of voices that were telling him to do so. Now, um, if you believe in good and evil and God and Satan, that's all well and good, but whether you do or don't, Mark Chapman did believe it. In fact, while at Attica State Prison, he had a um, he, he had um, 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 he had received a, a service um, where these demons were driven out of him. Supposedly, um, these demons that were in him that led him to this uh, perpetrate this crime of killing John Lennon. Was it an actual full-out exorcism? Uh, well, in the Catholic Church sense of it. Yeah, it really was. It was performed by a religious. Yes. That's the way it was described. So and these demons came out. I mean, by people that were there and documented, they saw the change. And even his wife had had, had commented. On, I mean, normally, you know, you hear everybody say, "Oh, you know, he seemed like such a nice guy." I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that he would do such a thing. But really, that kind of was the case with Chapman. A lot of people uh, were totally shocked that he would do such a thing, including his own wife. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting how the, how, like I say, this it followed a set pattern. He was there. He was there at the right, precise time. And, in fact, that's why um, he mentions, you know, if you read 
about the account of that day that he was there and he actually got an autograph from John Lennon, a souvenir, if you will, from John Lennon, where John autographed um, the um, um, Double Fantasy album for Mark David Chapman. And he was standing there, and that was like 11 o'clock in the morning, and he had his hand on the gun, and he could have done it right now, but the voices were telling him, no, it's not time. It's not the prescribed time. It's not the time. You see, it was odd that he had to wait for another good number of hours for it to be Tuesday the 9th before he could uh, and before he could do it. Hadn't he even made a previous trip to the Dakota even before that trip in December? Yeah, he had, he had done that before. It was almost like a dress rehearsal. This, Like I say, it's like if you want something to go the way you want it to go, you practice and rehearse it. It was almost like a rehearsal. This whole thing was with Mark David Chapman. Mark David Chapman, people might not know, he, he was so disillusioned with life, he turned away. I mean, he was a very religious, um, brought up with religion, but he suffered with um, problems throughout his whole life with struggling with the good and evil in his life. And I mean, he even had voices from an early age. Um, he talked about being influenced by voices he heard. But uh, he, he did, um, he did um, fly back and forth a couple of times from... Um, from uh, Hawaii um, to the Dakota uh, before the crime actually happened. And, and we often talk, uh, when we discuss uh, the demonic activity and, and demonic possession, we discuss the, as we mentioned before, the different stages, and one of them uh, is obsession where it will seem like uh, almost a benign spirit or something that takes hold of you and begins to influence your life and begins to kind of control you before you ultimately give yourself up to it and allow it to take over. And it wasn't necessarily a demon to Mark David Chapman. He was seeing it in the guise of a fictional character. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting because, um, because of um, you know, the catcher in the rye, the fact that he was, uh, it, it, maybe we can use the word distracted by the whole hole in Caldefield thing, distracted into this whole thing about promoting the catcher in the rye. Um, you know, and maybe it caused a type of fantasy world that he was living in um, that would allow him to be able to do what he did because he did like and worship John Lennon. He was obsessed with John Lennon. He absolutely adored the Beatles. I mean, and no offense to, to J.D. Salinger, who recently passed, but... Matt Koss and I were talking about this recently. It's not that great of a book that I would kill my idol just based over Catcher in the Rye. I know. I know. And that book sold like 100 million copies. There's something about that book. And it's not just him. I mean, the whole thing, this book is linked in a number of different characters throughout the, the history. Oh, it's, uh, this book is. I know it's had a profound uh, impact on Axl Rose's life. It, it did. And that's an example of one. Uh, it's, it's, there's something about that book and something that, you know, that uh, influenced Mark David Chapman. I'm not saying that it was the cause of it, but I'm saying it was a distraction for him. It played into it in some fashion. It had something to do with the whole picture. And I really couldn't come to grips with what it was, and maybe we'll never figure it out, but there was definitely something um, you know, tying it all together there. Well, Joe, it's, it's the fact that you've uh, put so much time uh, into following back through this and, and putting this book together, uh, we always say here on Spooky South Coast, it's, and as you mentioned before, it's not our job to make up minds for no. people. We're just presenting the information to them. Right. And, and certainly you've put together a wealth of information. We highly recommend everybody picks up the book. Oh, good. The Lennon Prophecy, A New Examination of the Death Clues of the Beatles. TheLennonProphecy.com is the website. And, uh, Joe, is there 
I mean, you have the blog on the website where people can can continue to submit clues uh, in in this vein. But do you think that there's still a whole bunch of other things in there that just have to be seen in the right light, as we saw earlier tonight? Well, I do get. I mean, the thing is, is uh, we had the one caller where you could see that he was very dissatisfied with what we were saying and mm-hmm. the way it was presented. But I'm telling you that. It, Ninety percent of what I get from people is in a very positive light, and they refer to a lot of their own instances in their own lives that they relate to what happened in, in their lives and the influence that the Beatles had in their lives. Yeah, so this isn't all meant to be negative. I understand John was an I, uh, you know, he was an idol of mine, and so and I understand what that means because I, I do really, I did like John Lennon so much, but. The thing is, like I said, that you just have to have an open mind, like you did with this interview. Just have an open mind and maybe draw on some of your own personal um, things that you knew about, and then try to relate to what I'm trying to um, trying to sell here. And and keep listening with a critical ear, and, That's and right. there may be something more to it. I mean, as great as the songs are, there there could be that deeper meaning, and one day it just might hit you. That's that's right. I mean, like you say, even the one gentleman in the studio with you tonight didn't like the Beatles. And see, for me, that's so foreign that there are people that didn't <laughs> like too. the Beatles. So not everyone was bitten by this bug. But, boy, there sure were a lot of us. Yet he still has Beatles rock band, though, so we'll give him credit for that. <laughs> we'll give him partial credit. All right. All right. Well, thank you All very right. much, Jonas Goda. All Enjoy right. your birthday. Okay. Thank you so much. And we'll much, talk Jim. to you again down the line. I know you said you don't have another book planned, but uh, something <laughs> tells me there might be one in you. We'll see what happens. All right. Have a great evening, and thank you to you and to all the listeners. Thank you, you very much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. That is Joe Nisgoda again. The book is The Lennon Prophecy, A New Examination of the Death Clues of the Beatles. You can get it through his website, thelennonprophecy.com, or through our site, spookysouthcoast.com. Matt, I know uh, we've got the book link up there for people that want to purchase it through our website, and we, we please ask that you do because that helps us. Yep. Uh, we get a small percentage of that. And also we're going to put the Beatles uh, CDs up there too, right, the the remasters and the monos and all the different collections and everything. Yeah, we'll put up a, a whole page of all sorts of Stuff. Catch her in the rye book. Sure. Well, let's put it all up there. There's a, a and, and there's a book that a couple of books that Joe we'll mentions. Yeah, we'll put them all up there too, and, and it'll be a one-stop shop, so you can get everything. From the fact that we get like the tiniest fraction of a percent of anything we sell, which helps us with the show. Yeah, that helps if you go there and buy it. But we also want you to go there and buy it because don't be like Matt Costa. Experience the Beatles for yourself. <laughs> Listen to them. Love them. Learn from them. Whether or not you see Joe's theory uh, shine through in the music, uh, that's up to your own interpretation. But I, I guarantee you, if you've never given the Beatles a chance, if you do, you will be in awe. And here we are on the 46th anniversary of the first day that they touched down in America and what an impact they've had. So until next week when Chris Balzano will be joining us for one of his Balzano breakdowns, and we're going to have a whole night of discussion based around that. We'll keep it under wraps for now, but stay tuned to SpookySouthCoast.com, and you can go to Twitter.com slash SpookySC. We're going to update that a little later on in the week. You're going to want to be involved in this show. So until then, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is...